war gaming is an expression that has been misused or maybe its use has been expanded it cannot be used it cannot be used for all kinds of things from corp corporate planning to a marketing plan to maybe to maybe how to set a field for a batter in a cricket game etc etc you are war gaming all the time but what about real war gaming or gaming the real wars now one way of doing it is when a war begins or is about to begin then you think what will happen the other is and that is something that and that is something that the most well endowed strategic affairs think tanks like to do is to game where wars may break out so the crisis group is among the most reputed such think tanks in the world headquartered in london so they've done their report on 2023 so they've gamed the world what's happening in the world in 2023 and anticipated the 10 conflicts that we all need to watch now why was this group formed this group was formed post 1993 between 1993 and 1995 because several conflicts broke out where it looked like the world was not prepared for those as if those were a surprise to the rest of the world these were conflicts in somalia rwanda bosnia etc etc and two of the founders of the group in fact were on a flight together from sarajevo when on the flight they chatted and they talked about the the need for having a group a think tank or a group of smart people who can anticipate such threats or such wars so the world could respond ahead of time ideally prevent these or maybe at least to minimize the damage from these so these two gentlemen was morton abramovich who's a former us ambassador to turkey and thailand and was then president of carnegie endowment for international peace carnegie and second mark melock brown mark melock brown is a former undp head united nations De development program head later they were joined in by senator george mitchell of the us and and they set up the crisis group so the crisis group has now listed the 10 con conflict zones the world should watch out for and i will give you the relief the good news or the better news first that india doesn't feature anywhere here so you might think that these smart people think that there are issues in india china situation india pakistan situation but these are nuclear weapon powers also these are powers now this is something that i am speaking from my analysis not from this report that maybe there is a belief that these these three nuclear weapons powers have lived in a conflict like situation for a long time so they know how to manage their conflict below a certain threshold or within a certain threshold see for example when india and china had their clash in galwan from the very next morning both sides were making conciliatory noises and were playing it down in fact none of the two sides even encouraged their media to make a big story of heroism etc out of these and similarly earlier the previous year when when conflicts took place following the attack in pulwama and then balakot etc both india and pakistan again obviously interacted behind the scenes or through back channels and were able to bring conflict levels or anger levels or escalation levels down so there is a belief possibly that india pakistan china have learned to manage this so fortunately india does not feature in the list pakistan does but not in the context of india i will come to that so let me first give you the list of the 10 countries or 10 conflicts 
that the world needs to watch out for according to the crisisgroup.org. Please check out their website. Number one, obviously, no-brainer, Ukraine, because the war has now gone into a stalemate phase. I will give you a couple of quotes from the report on the war, but the war is in a stalemate phase. There is a deep winter on. There is trench warfare going on. It will open up at some point and again, 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 spaces will be traded or again, at least efforts will be made by rival sides to take spaces. But right now, the war is in stalemate. This war will continue with the Ukrainians actually looking more determined to fight. Russia under Putin absolutely refusing to accept anything that looks like a defeat and the Western world totally united so far. Now we are almost halfway through winter, but totally united so far to keep supporting Ukraine. If anything, the Western support, particularly the American military support to Ukraine has gone up further. So that is number one. Number two is Armenia, Azerbaijan, right? We are familiar with that. We had, in fact, more than one episode of Karta Clatter. I'll share some of those links with you with the description so you can see those. Armenia, Azerbaijan. I will take you into some details of why these analysts think that war could come back. Number three is Iran, conflict zone. Number four is Yemen. Number five is Ethiopia. Number six is Democratic Republic of Congo and the Great Lakes. These are the African Great Lakes, which together, by the way, hold more fresh water than the American, North American Great Lakes. So Africa has these big, great ones, and there are 10 countries which are located around these lakes. At number seven is the Sahel region. You know what Sahel region is? This is the big landmass from the, from the Red Sea to the Atlantic Ocean, below, below the Saharan region, and above the Sudanian savannas or grasslands or flatlands. So this is a very wide, very large region. It has many countries in full, but also many other large African countries have parts of their nations, parts of their territory falling in the Sahel region. So that is the Sahel region number seven. Number eight is Haiti. That's again a conflict we know very little about in India. And somehow there's a feeling, ah, how does it matter to us? Right? Uh, what goes of my pop? But all conflicts need watching because this is a globalized world and you don't know what affects what. Number nine, that's very interesting. Number nine is Pakistan. But as I had said to you earlier, Pakistan not hyphenated with India. In fact, Pakistan not hyphenated with any country. In this case, Pakistan is a conflict zone to be watched according to the crisis group. As, as a conflict zone by itself, as a conflict zone within itself. And number 10 is Taiwan that we all of us know a fair bit about. So I read first of all from the essay, the opening essay that the authors of this report have written. The authors of this report are Comfort Ero. She is the CEO of the crisis group and Richard Atwood, who is an executive vice president based in Brussels. Now in their opening essay, among the many things, they make a very important point from, say, our point of view, India's point of view. So that is something that's relevant to India because they say that the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the way the Western powers have positioned themselves in that conflict against Russia, that has opened up a lot of space for non-Western middle powers. What does that mean? And who are these non-Western middle powers? So Turkey is one of them. Turkey has been actually 
acting with a lot of assertiveness in its neighborhood, in its distant neighborhood, Libya, Syria. It's been involved in conflicts there. It's been also playing a very strong role in ensuring who wins or who doesn't lose. It also got involved in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, selling its drones, etc. to Azerbaijan. At the same time, he's used the same space that it has created through its assertiveness to keep attacking its Kurdish rebels. But now, the war in Ukraine has opened up more spaces for Turkey. So Turkey, for example, got global acclaim for brokering it. Its stature went up because it brokered that deal between the Russia, Ukrainians, through the UN for the Ukrainian grain to be taken out from Ukrainian ports because re the rest of the world needs that grain, particularly Africa, which is very short of the grain, wheat, corn, and also sunflower oil grown by Ukraine. Ukraine is big. Ukraine is a big agricultural power. So Turkey's stature has gone up as a result. And Turkey is at the same time selling drones and other stuff to Ukraine as well. So Turkey is now playing, playing in this space as a, as a very influential middle power without taking sides. Then, then you have Saudi Arabia. There is Saudi Arabia which has benefited from oil prices going up because Russian oil has gone out of so many markets. And because of that, Saudi Arabia has acquired leverage. So Saudi Arabia did not increase oil production to bring down oil prices that angered the world, including America. But that was also Saudi way of saying that, look, we have some strength also. Don't take us for granted. And that has resulted in the Americans now, the Western powers, particularly America, going soft on Mohammed bin Salman. We've seen that he's now been given that complete immunity from any legal proceedings in America about columnist Khashoggi's killing. Then you have India. Then India is mentioned. India is mentioned, and I quote the lines exactly from the essay. And it says, and I quote, India, at once a US security partner and major purchaser of Russian arms, has both bought knockoff Russian oil, that means cheap Russian oil, has both bought knock of Russian oil, and also chided Putin for his nuclear saber rattling. Remember, Prime Minister Modi telling Putin repeatedly that this is not the era of war. And then the authors go on to say, this is no coordinated non-aligned movement. These, these middle powers are operating on their own, each one on their own. This is not a coordinated non-aligned movement, but activist middle powers feel space to chart their own course. And I'm quoting, but Activist middle powers feel they have the space to chart their own course and while a few of them may welcome big power rivalry, they will still seize the opportunity that multipolarity brings. And then the essay concludes by saying that remember in this year, last year 2022, there were more people being killed and displaced maybe than at any time during the second world war. That I thought was not entirely accurate. Because when people say these things, they think only of Europe and maybe sometimes Africa. But they forget Asia and definitely the subcontinent, which in the Western world is called South Asia, although my preferred usage is Indian subcontinent. Because even if you just look at, look at the war in Bangladesh, that led to more killings, many more killings, even before the actual war began and displacement of human beings than, than what you're seeing in Europe and Africa now. In fact, in fact, even the displacements and killings, say in Afghanistan, were of a much higher order. But as I said earlier, the Indian subcontinent and the larger South Asian expanse is not a region 
that the Western think tanks, experts, strategic community think about or talk about. And when they write these reports and they do this research, somehow this region is not at the top of their minds. Nevertheless, the point they make about middle powers is not very different from the point made by our external affairs minister, S. Jay Shankar, repeatedly. And I, I will repeat a quote from him to you. And I quote, Multilat multilateralism has fallen short. Bilateral delivery is not what it used to be. World is now moving towards multipolarity, rebalancing and plurilateralism. So that's the new thing, plurilateralism. Shared values and comforts are creating new combinations. And then he goes on to add that India will not fall for mind games. So what he's saying is something that the authors of this report are also reflecting, that this current change in the world where the largest, the strongest strategic group is fighting a nation which is today not backed by a larger strategic group of any kind. So this is not Warsaw Pact versus NATO. This is NATO and America versus mighty Russia. This has opened up strategic spaces for middle powers, including India in this case. Now what I'll do is I quickly run you through these 10 areas of conflict as briefly as possible and quite briefly. So Ukraine, all of your experts on Ukraine, routinely, at least in a month, even now in a stalemated situation, at least one, if not two a month of cut the clutter episodes we dedicate to Ukraine. So I will not go too deep into that, but I will tell you what, the, what these experts are saying. They are saying that Ukraine, the war will continue and we'll have to watch many situations. They say the idea, the notion or the threat that the Russians will now launch a fresh attack in the central sector from Belarus. That looks less and less likely. One, because it looks less likely to succeed than it that might have been the case maybe a year earlier. And second, not quite sure if Russians have the wherewithal to do this anymore. Again, they say, can it go, go nuclear? Can it cross that threshold? Again, they say it's unlikely because both the West and the Russians have known where to pull back. So the Americans and the West have not imposed any no-fly zones. They've also not given certain kinds of weapon systems to Ukraine, which they might see as escalatory. And at the same time, Putin has also walked back from his nuclear saber rattling. Next conflict then, next, next conflict then, Armenia, Azerbaijan. They had a war in 2020. We had a couple of episodes of Katta Clutter on that. Right now, there's a stalemate. But what they are saying is, the authors, they are saying that at this point, Armenia has not been able to rearm itself. Armenia, in any case, was a weaker power. It was defeated in six weeks, suffered very severely in a very violent war, suffered very heavy casualties, lost a lot of territory. It was a, it was a clear victory for Azerbaijanis, armed by Turkish and Israeli drones, and also a much bigger military power. Armenia's ally and supporter was Russia. Russia at that point was able to broker a ceasefire. Russia also put some peacekeeping troops there, a very small contingent, but in the hope that because they are Russian, Azerbaijanis will not take pangas with them. They will not mess with them. But now Russia is weakened and Russia is distracted. So with, will Azerbaijani take advantage of that? While Armenia has not been able to strengthen itself simply because its main supporters, from where it got most of its weaponry, etc., etc., the Russians, they are distracted. And Russians have no weaponry to spare right now. In fact, they are running short of ammunition, missiles, tanks, etc. So they are pulling out their reserves, even from their storehouses, even equipment they might have mothballed, they have, that is being pulled out for Ukraine. So they don't have very much to spare for Armenia. So the 
asymmetry between Armenia and Azerbaijan has become so large that Azerbaijan may just be tempted this year to push the Armenians again and take what it can with mighty force, with brute power and take whatever it can with the use of brute military power where it now is much stronger than Armenia. Number three, Iran. Iran again is not directly hyphenated but the issue is that Iran has a lot of instability because of the protests in Iran and then and then the Iranians are irritated with Saudi Arabians because they think Saudis are encouraging these satellite channels, uh, satellite video channels which are promoting rebellions and protests in Iran. But more importantly, in October 2023, the UN mandated sanctions on Iranian ballistic missile program, they will come to an end. What will the Western powers do then? If they push back again and they ask for fresh sanctions, Iran may just respond by withdrawing from non-proliferation treaty. And that is a step that can trigger a warlike response both from Israel or America. And any attack on Iranian nuclear facilities of any kind can lead to more trouble by way of tit-for-tat escalation. Number four, Yemen. Yemen is again something which has featured on CTC more than once all the couple of years back. In Yemen, there is a truce. The, the report says since April, the truce has held and major fighting has not resumed. But, but both sides are preparing and waiting. So one reason major fighting is not resumed probably is because of Ukraine, because everybody is distracted with Ukraine and nobody wants, particularly Saudis and UAE, who listen to the Americans also or the Western powers also, because they are more or less al aligned with the Western powers, that don't start another conflict which will put, which will put pressure on oil supplies. That's one. The other thing is the Houthis, the rebels, they really can't go anywhere without active Iranian support. And Iranians at this point have more interesting power games happening closer to their mainland in Russia and then through Russia and Ukraine because we know that several hundreds of Iranian drones, kamikaze drones have been sold to the Russians and now they are selling some missiles also. So Iranians now are focused there. So maybe at this point Houthis are not needed, what they would need to resume a war, but this can start any moment. Next is Ethiopia, again a subject of two CTCs in the past. So Ethiopia also has an uneasy truce in the Tigray region. But the fact is to fight the Tigrayan rebels, what is called as TPLF, it is Tigray People's Liberation Front. The the leader of Ethiopia, that is Abiy Ahmed, he got the Nobel Prize for Peace, by the way, infamously. He had also called the forces of neighboring Eritrea. Now, the question is that even if Tigrayans honor the truce, which is almost like conceding, conceding defeat, because there were two agreements, one signed on 2nd November in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, and a follow-up agreement 10 days later in Nairobi, TPLF has more or less conceded defeat to the extent of accepting Ethiopian sovereignty, etc., etc. But will it satisfy the Eritreans? Because the very reason President Isaias Awarki of Eritrea joined the war was because he wanted to completely destroy the Tigrayan threat to his own country. By the way, remember until 2018, Eritrea and Ethiopia were at war and that ended with the peace agreement that Abiy Ahmed and the Eritrean leader signed. That might have also contributed to the Nobel Prize for Abiy Ahmed. Now both are together fighting the Tigrayans. Will what looks like victory to Abiy Ahmed also look like victory to Eritrea? That is the question. Remember, global think tanks and in this case Belgium's Ghent University, they estimate that from anything between 
3.85 lakhs to 6 lakh people, human beings have died in this conflict. The next three, I'll, I'll run through even more quickly. That is Democratic Republic of Congo and the Great Lakes. I told you what the Great Lakes are. And I told you the countries in the Great Lakes region, that is 10 countries. Uh, Burundi, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Rwanda, Zambia, Tanzania, Uganda. So these 10 countries. Now, all of these countries have some kind of instability or the other. And that at this moment is focused in some ways in DRC. Now, Democratic Republic of Congo has a lot of, lot of precious resources. The Chinese are there. Everybody who wants to get into electric vehicles, batteries, clean energy is there. Because DRC is a storehouse of cobalt and lithium. So a poor country, poor, a poor, poorly governed, unstable country now also has this massive resource curse. And rebel groups encouraged by one country or the other are playing in it. And this has now become a zone of many proxy wars. So that is one. The next is Sahel. We told you what the region is. Sahel also has many African, African countries and parts of many African countries, Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Algeria, part of it, Nigeria, part of it, Cameroon, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Niger, Chad, Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia. Again, not whole of the whole of these countries, but parts of these countries. Again, that is the one region in the world where the Islamic State and jihadis have been most successful and they are headquartered there. So 40% of this large territory, see on the map how large this territory is, across so many countries, 40% of these countries, 40% of this territory is controlled by jihadis of various kinds. So there is no knowing when this will go out of control again. Which brings us to number 9, which is Pakistan. I know you've been waiting for it. I didn't give it to you first because if I talked about Pakistan first, maybe some of you would have said, okay, Pakistan is gone, why bother about the rest? But you know, the whole point of CTC, particularly when, particularly when we look at international affairs, which we often do and which I know you like, the very, very reason we do it is to remind us all ourselves. I do it also to remind myself that this is a globalized world. Every part of the world matters because you don't know what will affect you in which way. Now, Pakistan. On Pakistan, they say, Pakistan has a deeply divided polity as it heads into an election year. So Imran Khan is outside. He's building up populist pressures, populist support against the government and all-powerful military. So this is the first time, and I'm adding this, that a populist in Pakistan is building support against the military. That is the big change in Pakistan. And that's a destabilizing factor in Pakistan because in Pakistan, Prime Ministers come and go, but the military remains there. Nobody fights with the military. Nobody attacks the military. Nobody calls the military an adversary of military leadership and adversary. In the process, the military willy-nilly becomes a factor of stability in Pakistan, the central pillar of Pakistan's polity. Today, that is under attack by a populist who's getting more popular by the day. And also what's happening is, while they are going for the elections, the report says, the very basis of very institutions who hold the elections, they are being brought into question by Imran Khan. That is the election commission, courts, etc., etc. Election commission, court, the army. So he keeps mocking the army for being neutrals. I'm adding that. So that is what is causing concern about Pakistan. Because meanwhile, I'm quoting from the report again, Islamist rebels are resurgent. Khyber Pakhtunkhwa has seen a spike in both Talibani attacks 
and also by other Pakistani rebels. And this is all this is making a deadly cocktail and we don't know what might happen in that country. Now, you know what? Pakistan is next door to us. So when we look at it, it does look like, but they've had this problem for a long time. So maybe, maybe this global think tank is bringing in Pakistan, maybe to, maybe to create a proper geographical spread in their analysis. That's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is that Pakistan is a country of 23 crore plus people. Its economy is a mess. A lot of people have suffered. It has inflation, etc., etc. That's that's all there. But it's all a lot of people have also suffered because of the floods, and it doesn't look like things are going to get better anytime. In this situation, political instability with nuclear weapons, with falling credibility of the army in Pakistan, or the or the increasing popular questioning of the army in Pakistan can have consequences that are difficult to imagine. So maybe the think tank is wise to include Pakistan in the list and importantly in an unhyphenated manner. So Pakistan is a conflict zone but right now in conflict with itself. And finally there is Taiwan. So the less I talk about the better because Taiwan is something that that's been in our headlines and our analysis for a long time. The important thing they mention is that now the House Speaker succeeding Nancy Pelosi, maybe Republican Party's Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy has already said that if he does succeed Nancy Pelosi, he will go to Taiwan. Although, even if he does go, you know that these are big powers. There will be a lot of saber rattling and noise making. But even the authors of the report do not really seriously see a conflict breaking out. Although they see, although they do not rule out some instability.